Good evening, everyone. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm a fellow of the Middle East Center, and I'm going to be hosting tonight's speaker, Dr. Kristen Henderson. He's a university lecturer in international relations and modern Middle Eastern studies at the University of Leiden. He's a scholar of political economy and development in the Middle East. His research focuses on the Arab region, with a particular focus on Gulf investment in the states of North Africa and the Levant, rural development, and business politics. He has 20 years of experience working in the Middle East. He was previously a journalist in Lebanon and for Al Jazeera in Qatar. He covered the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah war, and he consulted on business and politics in the Middle East for corporations and governments. His next project is going to examine the consequences of a green energy shift in the Middle East and North Africa region, focusing on the modality of state implementation of renewable energy and the reconfiguration of regime power through these schemes, economically, politically, and ideologically. And I want to say to the audience that you should ask your questions using the Q&A function in Zoom. After Dr. Henderson has spoken, he will, of course, entertain questions. And so if you send questions on the Q&A function, if you want to be anonymous, then you should say so. Otherwise, when I read your question out, I will read your name. The title of Dr. Henderson's lecture is What Does Political Ecology Tell Us About Environmental Crisis in the Middle East? Take it away, Kristen. Okay. Hello and good evening. Thank you for coming to this lecture and thank you to St. Anthony's College for the invitation. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. So essentially what I'm going to talk about this evening is political ecology and what kind of lessons we can draw from political ecology in terms of understanding the forms of environmental crisis that are currently unfolding within the region. Now, this isn't necessarily a piece of research. It's rather a set of reflections and conclusions that I've drawn through teaching a course here at Leiden University on political ecology in the Middle East. So in that sense, I will do my best to reference some of the scholars that have really kind of allowed me to come to some of these conclusions that are, are featured on the syllabus of the course that I teach. But if anyone is interested to see the reading list of the syllabus, please do get in contact with me and I will, I can send it to you in order that they receive the citations that they deserve. So what I'm going to do today is essentially go through a talk that has about three or four stages. Firstly, I'm going to, to define what I mean by political ecology. I'm going to kind of explain what that, that entails, what kind of theoretical and conceptual tools that gives us. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the way in which the environment tends to be perceived within the Western imaginary, the environment in the Middle East and North Africa, that is, and how we can use political ecology as a tool to kind of deconstruct that. I will then talk about the projects and plans and policies that are being implemented by governments in the region and what political ecology tells us about those, those pro projects and why they may not be successful. And lastly, I will offer some alternative possibilities, some alternative forms of environmental relations in the region that we could examine and use to give us perhaps a little bit more of an optimistic idea of what may happen in the future. So firstly, let me just explain what I mean by political ecology. So political ecology is essentially a means of understanding the way in which the environment is determined by society. It places an emphasis on the manner in which resources, crisis, externalities 
are distributed unequally within society. So in this sense, this framework considers that ecology is political. It pushes back on the notion that environmental governance is neutral or apolitical. And with this lens, we can see that a problem such as scarcity is really socially constructed. It is not a problem that is created by the limitations and capacities of our natural environment. And I think this is a, an important point to remember in terms of what I'll be discussing about in terms of the Middle East. So in this sense, political ecology is opposed to the ideas of someone like Thomas Malthus, who argued that population growth would lead to crisis and starvation due to the limitations of environment. And political ecology would really push back on this idea because it doesn't necessarily take into account the way in which resources are distributed unequally. Now, what attracts me to this conceptual field is that this isn't just an abstract critical academic theory. It also offers quite practical means of establishing alternative ecological relations, alternative ways of achieving some sort of form of environmental sustainability. And one way it does that is through an emphasis on human agency. So political ecology would remind us that there is always human agency over the environment. And there is always a, the means to transform our environment, both in a bad way, but also in a good way. So in this vein, the field would pay considerable attention to the successful environmental custodianship of native peoples. It would pay attention to the forms of environmental management and knowledge that are manifest in traditional practices. It would also include discussions on alternative economic systems on the basis that the model of infinite economic growth is essentially incompatible with sustainability. So it would, within this kind of conceptual field, you could also argue that ideas such as degrowth or donut economics offer these kinds of alternatives. Now, I won't go any further on the theory. It's late on a Friday evening, and perhaps it's not the right time for a discussion about theory. So I'm going to move on now to a more kind of empirical reflection. So when we look at the Middle East, we can see that there is no doubt that the environment in the Middle East is in a state of crisis, as it is in every part of the world. Carbon emissions and a warming climate are projected to result in temperature increases that could threaten many forms of life. The uh, droughts and declining food yields will be severely detrimental, particularly for the poorer societies in the region. Other problems include biodiversity loss, waste, unsustainable material extraction of resources, water, minerals, and all of these are, are placing extreme pressure on, on Earth's life systems. And none of what I say in this lecture refutes this reality. However, what I would say is that using the framework of political ecology, we can see that these types of problems within the Middle East and North Africa tend to be treated in quite an exceptional manner. And this is present in Western media, but also present, I think, to a certain extent in some forms of Western scholarly research. So generally, there is a tendency to portray the environment in the region as distinct from that in the West. And I'm going to show you a couple of examples. Can everyone see that slide? So here we can see some examples of news headlines of reporting of the, on the environment within the region. And I think they perhaps give you some idea of the kind of sensationalism and exceptionalism that is present in some of this reporting. And generally, we can see that there are more deeper tropes as well. Often the Middle Eastern environment is portrayed as unruly and badly governed. 
a condition that threatens to lead to societal collapse and migration that could threaten European stability. And one very good example of this is the argument that was quite popular around 10 years ago, that the revolution and civil war in Syria was started by climate change. And the argument was is that the drought that took place in the 2007 and 2008 was caused by climate change. And that drought pushed a number of farmers off their land who then were forced to internally migrate to the cities. And these people then were dissatisfied and unhappy and they were a major, uh, the major actors in the, the revolt that took place in 2011. Now, this isn't a marginal argument. This was an argument that was uh, very popular at that time in this sort of early part of the last decade. And as an example, it was actually repeated by President Obama. However, as uh, a number of scholars have pointed out, people such as Marwa Daudi and Jan Selby, as well as others, there is little evidence or the evidence for this argument is very questionable. In fact, it, it seems very doubtful. There isn't really that much evidence that this was the chain of events that actually took place. And they would also argue that this ignores the political and social roots of what took place in Syria. Now, this link between conflict and resources in the region is also repeated elsewhere. You can find this trope emerge in many different forms. And generally, there is a kind of picture that, you know, this is a region that is in a constant state of chaos and conflict as a result of natural resources. And if any of you are interested, I recommend that you read some of the articles by Clements Hoffman, who's written about this in quite a succinct manner. So, for example, conflicts in Sudan and Syria are explained on the basis of resource scarcity. Another example would be this constant argument that you can find that the region will experience war on the basis of water shortages. At the same time, and in a contradictory manner, region's resource wealth is also analyzed as a source of conflict. So, for example, oil is sometimes used in a simplistic manner to explain conflict and other forms of geopolitical intrigue. Again, an another example of this would be Syria and the argument that's again circulated in the last decade that one of the reasons behind Qatar's support for the Syrian opposition was that the uh, Assad regime refused to allow Qatar to construct a pipeline that would link its gas to Western markets. Again, there's not really any evidence for this. So these kind of tropes, they, they, they persist. We can find them again, emerging again and again and again. And they have quite deep sort of ontological roots, I think. And essentially, they, I would argue that they're a form of environmental orientalism, essentially. So these ideas rest on the assumption that societies in the region do not have the same agency over the environment as you might find in the West. There is this depiction that societies in the region are subjects of the, the environment. They are determined by the environment. They are not masters of the environment. And as I said, these depictions are not new. They're rooted in an environmental imaginary that has been present in the Western's perception of the Orient for several centuries. Now, I won't read these out, but whilst I'm talking, perhaps you could, if you're interested, you can have a look at them. But these are a couple of examples of what I'm talking about, I think. And they are uh, the writings of you know, Western European uh, explorers and historians who visited various parts of the Middle East during this time. And essentially what you can see here is this idea that the desert is both exotic, but also a form of abnormal nature. Manifest is the notion that this is a biblical 
an ancient landscape whose contemporary inhabitants, in, indigenous inhabitants, are unable to take care of the land. And therefore, this has led to this desertification. And the insinuation is, in, in many of these kinds of reflections, is that this inability to take care of land and govern land and care for land is that it justifies colonial intervention and colonial governance in, in some way or another. Now, these tropes, as I say, they, they're very persistent and they exist in contemporary forms of Western culture. On the left there, many of you will recognize that as being a uh, scene in Lawrence of Arabia. And I think that's a very good example of what I'm referring to. This is the scene in which one Bedouin tribesman shoots another in a dispute over water. And I think this is an example of what I'm referring to, that you know, this is a, an, an image of a society that is in a constant state of conflict over resources. And what's particularly interesting about this example is that obviously between them is Lawrence himself, who is, is depicted in this scene as the kind of voice of moderation, the person who's trying to stabilize this region, prevent these conflicts and bring some unity to, to people. Another example would be on the right, which is a, a scene from Black Hawk Down. And it's a scene where American Marines fly over Mogadishu and experience a, a warlord seizing the food that's supposed to go to, to people. And what's interesting about this is that in terms of the sort of cinematography is that you can see there in the clip, in the picture that they actually, they've put a certain type of lens on the, the film that is uh, intended to make the place Somalia look dirtier, darker, more threatening. And that's actually, other people have written about this and this also takes place elsewhere, uh, particularly, for example, in films about somewhere like Mexico, for example. So what I've done here is really try and explain or argue that the way the Western perception of the environment is problematic for, for all kinds of reasons. And it's tended to create this kind of uh, exceptional view that leads to quite hysterical, sensational coverage, coverage that is actual, in actual fact wrong for various reasons. So what I'm going to do now is move on a little bit and talk about what political ecology can tell us about some of the government policies that are being applied in the region that are intended to, at least they have the stated intention of trying to address environmental sustainability. Now, I think by and large, I think political ecology would tell us that many of these policies and plans will most likely fail in their objective to achieve a genuine form of environmental sustainability. And I'm talking here about the slew of news announcements that we can almost see on a weekly basis at the moment of very large and ambitious projects that are intended to address the environment. So, for example, renewable energy projects, forestation, desalination, vertical farming, new cities in the desert, geoengineering, carbon extraction. Now, some of these projects, particularly re renewable energy, clearly do have benefits in terms of sustainability. Renewable energy can obviously lead to the decarbonization of energy systems. However, what I would argue here really is that what has tended to take place is that the hype and the, the, the policy discourse that has surrounded uh, renewable energy projects has also become a form of politics that is quite important. So it's not necessarily about achieving uh, decarbonization. It's about the kind of technopolitics that surrounds these sort of forms of projects. And if we actually look at the details of these projects, we can see that the idea that there is a green energy transition in place becomes 
a little bit problematic. So, for example, if you were to look at the UAE, you can see, and UAE is one country that often uh, you can see in reports that there is uh, an assumption that a green energy transition is taking place there. However, you can see that currently the green, the amount of renewable energy that constitutes the country's power mix is around 2%, maybe less. And even by 2050, only 50% of the country's power generation will come from renewable energy, maybe less, maybe 46% actually. And just to give you an example of another example of why I think we should be a little bit questionable about these claims. In 2023, Dubai will complete a coal-fired power station. So again, this is not really the kind of thing you would expect from a society that is making a genuine renewable energy transition. Now, in other cases, these projects are not environmentally sustainable at all, but really they're about what Gokshe Gunnel, who wrote a very interesting book called Spaceship in the Desert, described as technical interventions. They are essentially designed to displace unsustainability, environmental unsustainability, elsewhere. They can either spatially, either literally physically to another place, or temporally into the future. So in this sense, this kind of, this is, a, I think, really an, an example of how governments uh, in the region are preferring to have a technical intervention into the social metabolism that essentially is designed to avoid the very tricky questions and difficult questions of achieving real sustainability and also depoliticize these questions and turn them into something that is purely technocratic. So for example, if you were to look at desalination, you can see that this is a highly power intensive process, desalination being the removal of seawater and turning it into freshwater from the sea, which is a very common practice in places like the Gulf, but also increasingly in Jordan and Israel. But you can see that in reality, this is a very uh, power intensive process. All, most of the power that it consumes has a carbon footprint. So these processes have a very uh, large carbon footprint. And moreover, it dumps the saline back into the sea, which has a damaging effect on marine ecosystems, but also leads to rising saline content in the sea. So in the future, desalination will become a more costly and more difficult process. And moreover, these projects are unlikely to be socially progressive. There is, tends to be an assumption that technology will lead to social progress. And I think this is something that we as a society, as a global society, are beginning to realize is not the case. We can certainly see that in other areas such as big data. But the assumption that, that these projects will lead to social progress is, is, I think, questionable. And often they tend to be very top down and reproduce existing social inequalities and hierarchies. I just want to give you an example here. So this is, I think, a very good example of the type of project that I'm referring to as a kind of mega project. And this is Neom in Saudi Arabia. And Neom is a new city that's been established by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It's very obviously very important to him politi politically and economically in terms of his so-called vision for the country. And one example of this, the kind of manner in which you have a sort of policy hype that's attached to these projects would be this latest announcement that they intend to build a city that will take the shape of a straight line. It's called the line. And I actually don't necessarily think that this will 
ever be constructed. I think it's actually just a, a, an attempt to create publicity and a, a, attention. But what you can see in a project like this is that it, in, in terms of it reproducing the, the same hier hierarchies and being very top down, is that this project actually displaced local people. It displaced the local tribe and in actual fact, it, it resulted in the, in the killing and in, in clashes with security forces of, a, of one of these tribesmen. And ultimately, I think that many of these projects really are just about the usual concerns of any ruling elite. The dominant motivation within many of these so-called these projects that are intended to try and achieve sustainability is in reality just the reproduction of power, both in terms of public image and making money. And essentially, they're a form of technopolitics that are intended to create the image of progress and also create new business opportunities and sources of rent for the ruling elite in different ways. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the final part of the lecture, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what political ecology could inform us of alternatives. So if, if this isn't going to work, if this is unlikely to achieve real sustainability, then what, what can we do? Where can we look at what might be the model for a more sustainable relationship with the environment? So on this question, political ecology would guide us to the need for a deeper systemic change in order to create a genuinely harmonious relationship with our ecology. And in that sense, I think one lesson that we could learn would be from the forms of environmental governance that existed prior to the formation of states in the region. Now, in contrast to the type of violent chaos that is depicted in films such as Lawrence of Arabia, pastoral cultures, the Bedouin tribes of the region, often relied on systems of environmental governance that were remarkably sophisticated and effective. And I'm referring to here the example of Himas or Ahmir, which is a an Arabic word that refers essentially to protected places. And these existed in most of the arid rangelands of the region. And they were essentially common lands that were subject to tribal agreements in order to prevent over-exploitation and grazing. They did prohibit access to other people, but often there is some evidence to suggest that these disputes were, were managed relatively peacefully, although not always. Another example would be the types of agreements and cooperation that could be found in the management of terrorist agriculture for example, in South Arabia, but also elsewhere in the region. This system has pretty much disappeared as a result of the emergence of states in the 20th century that essentially nationalized land. And actually, what's interesting is that you can see in the literature that at the end of this system actually led to uh, environmental degradation and overgrazing. And I'm not suggesting that a return to this way of life is either desirable or feasible, but what I am saying is that this system could be taken as a precedent of more sustainable living, one that has clear indigenous antecedents. So this is not something that is imposed from outside. It's something that is already present within the kind of cultural tradition of the region. Now, the other direction in which political ecology would point us is towards the region's social movements. And often the study of these movements in the West has tended to focus on the implications for strategy and security and the internal substance of these revolutions and rebellions is sometimes subject to less attention. And one area in which this is definitely the case is the kind of ecological and environmental features of these social movements. And I would argue that much of the history of the region's social movements, 
whether it be the Palestinian national movement, the Egyptian revolution, the Rojava region, the Lebanese protests of the last couple of years, the Dofa revolution of the 60s and 70s, were all partly motivated by questions of environmental justice. Now, in some ways, this may seem to be obvious to, to some of you, but I think it's worth reiterating. And I think it's worth reiterating because these movements' history of peasant rebellions and resistance against settler colonialism, monopolization of land, and water and dispossession has often been hidden and distorted. And I think these movements allow us to imagine an alternative possibility. Their confirmation of the existence of social agency over the environment, as well as its control by ruling elites and, and colonial powers. And with these movements in mind, the societies of the Middle East should not be seen as resigned to the fate of environmental crisis. And they are also a reminder of the fact that the possibility for future dissent is always going to be present. Okay, I'm going to end there. I've realized I've covered a lot of ground in half an hour. So if anyone has any further questions, I look forward to try and answer them. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. I have a question from Karim al-Gindi. I, I will read it to you. It is that perhaps there is a distinction to be made here between media sensationalism about political impacts of climate change and the region's fundamental environmental conditions. The fact that environmental conditions across the region are largely less, well, the text says less unsuitable for human settlement, but I think perhaps he meant less suitable for human settlement than temperate climates, except for a few geographic locations where water, biocapacity, and climate allow it, makes the region highly vulnerable to climate change. There are numerous studies on the subject are we suggesting that this is not true? I'm not suggesting it's not true. Um, I think that there are features of the region that make it vulnerable to environmental reasons uh, that make it vulnerable to something such as climate change. But what I am saying is that this is that type of question is often treated in a very exceptional manner. So, for example, I live in the Netherlands, which is a country that sits below the sea level and is also highly susceptible to climate change, but I don't necessarily see the Netherlands being treated in the same way as I do ecologies of the Middle East and North Africa. So I think that my argument is, is that, this, that this kind of environmental reality is not something that I'm refuting, but rather what I am arguing is that the, the treatment of the ecology of the region, both within mainstream media and within, within some scholarship and within policy research, has a tendency to, to exceptionalize and place an emphasis on, or, or not place enough emphasis on human agency over the environment. Okay, um, remind, remind the participants that if you wanna ask questions, use the Q&A function in Zoom. Uh, I'll ask a question. Uh, at one point you, you mentioned that most of the policies for creating sustainable living in the region will fail. And it immediately occurred to me that that is very much the case here as well. I mean, this country, you know, for example, pats itself on the back for reducing automobile emissions, but at the same time is expanding its transportation network in, in ways that, you know, sort of, with, you know, telling itself that it can, you know, avoid changing its lifestyle by getting everybody to switch to electric cars, which actually have at least as large a carbon footprint when you look at it from the beginning of production all the way to the end of its use as conventional automobiles, possibly even more, it's not going to, it's actually facilitating that is only going to make 
the environmental crisis worse from the perspective of, of, of what this country does with it. But then the trajectory of places in the Middle East, like Cairo, for example, I mean, you know, you, you were sort of raising the, you know, the, the visions of, you know, kind of traditional pastoral land use and so forth. But actually, you know, sort of the, the traditional big cities like Cairo, compared to on a per capita basis to cities in the West, is very efficient. And yet the trajectory of Cairo is is all about trying to make Cairo more like the UK. And and so, I mean, what, what does one do with this? I mean, you know, this is actually the trajectory of the political ecology seems to be going exactly in the opposite direction that, that you're sustaining, that, that you're arguing, you know, that it, that it could go. And, you know, when you're talking about precedents, shouldn't you be looking more at, at the urban precedents than the, you know, kind of the land use and the pastoral precedents? Yeah, so I mean, I think when I when I say that many of these projects, particularly I'm talking about the mega projects, the really substantially, you know, enormous projects that, that are sometimes discussed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's no difference there between, you know, what forms of Western policy in the sense that most Western policy is not necessarily about achieving genuine sustainability. It's rather, I think, a form of modernism that is essentially about, well, partly, again, about displacing unsustainability elsewhere. So certainly within the West, you know, you can see that something like electric cars or the industrialization process, the, the commodities and, and, and technology that we consume is produced elsewhere. So, you know, that's one argu argument you can make about China, for example, in the sense that one of the reasons why it has such a large, large carbon footprint is that it is, is essentially the workshop of the world. And, I, and I, when I say that they will most likely fail, um, then there is no difference there. This isn't something that is, I think this, you could say the same thing about many, um, many regions of the world, particularly in the, the West. Um, in terms of your question about um, Egypt, I mean, that's a really good, uh, I'm glad you raised that because Egypt has a very, uh, Cairo has a very high uh, 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 rate of um, waste recycling. I think it's one of the, even one of the highest in the world. But the reason why that, one of the reasons why that's the case is that the waste uh, disposal is undertaken by a group of people who live in an area outside of Cairo. Uh, and they do it in, a, albeit in very un, uh, unpleasant circumstances, but they do it by hand. It's a kind of cottage industry. And I think that's a good example of the fact that the bottom up uh, forms of activity tend to be more successful than top-down forms of activity uh, in the sense that as I'm far as I'm aware they did try and privatize garbage collection in Egypt uh, a few years ago and they, they still try and do this but they the corporate uh, garbage collection in Cairo which just simply wasn't as efficient as the kind of cottage industry the informal collection of garbage now lastly I'm not sure what your final question was but why are we looking at rural forms of... We got another question that okay. is along the same lines. This is from Faisal Hamada. And uh, it's a more efficient formulation of the same question that I was <laughs> just trying to ask a moment ago. He's saying, first of all, he's saying, thanks for the talk. I wonder if there's a place for urbanism in discussions of political ecology in the region that isn't necessarily dictated through the kinds of top-down spectacles you discuss. I mean, you were just talking about that a moment ago. Perhaps you could elaborate on it a bit more. I mean, I, I'm kind of more of a ruralist, I'm, uh, so I'm not, I'm less of an urbanist in terms of my perspective, but I think that that's obviously a really important question. 
But I think that what is, you know, forms of democracy, whether it be energy democracy or access to commodities uh, or access to resources, access to water, um, are often, you know, that's that's a kind of that's a key question within urban society. So I think, for example, if you were to look at the protests that took place in Lebanon over over garbage, in, in some ways this underlines what I'm talking about in the sense that the protests in Lebanon started in around 2015 or the current wave of protests, and they started as a result of the garbage crisis. So, you know, in terms of understanding environmental justice movements in the region, yes, there is a peasant movement, undoubtedly. I mean, it, we could argue that the 2011 revolution in Egypt has this whole other uh, history, which is one of a peasant movement. And Sakhar al-Nur, whose name I actually saw in the participants, has written about this and, and come up with some really interesting details of the number of pe people who joined unions, farmers' unions, after the 2011 revolution in Egypt. It was you know, upwards of, of 800,000 people. But also we could say the same thing about urban movements. Urban social movements are often about questions of environmental justice. If we look at, for example, Lebanon, and we look at what took place there, I mean, that was a, clearly a, the garbage crisis for a lot of people represented a whole lot of other things that were wrong with society. But it was the garbage crisis that really was the trigger. I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I've done my best to. Okay, here's, here's another question. This one is from Yusuf Sharif who says authoritarian regimes in the Middle East and North Africa are using the fight against climate change the way they used the war on terror in previous decades as a means to secure Western support. Do you have any thoughts on this hypothesis? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think unfortunately, climate uh, will become highly securitized in different ways. And I think, uh, the, you know, I mean, I saw, for example, the other day that the UK government is trying to implement new regulation that would criminalize protest against, for example, oil infrastructure. So I think that on one level, you know, that, that kind of it confirms what you're talking about in some ways, in the sense that on one level, it will be used as sort of growing discontent about the environment will, I think, be responded to with increasing securitization. But also a lot of the kind of Western governments, but I think some governments in the region will view questions of resources and questions of access to resources in a very securitized manner. There's some interesting research that's being done, actually, to show how Western militaries are really incorporating uh, this kind of securitized attitude towards climate change. So I think, I think that that's, that's absolutely correct. Okay, I, I have uh, both a comment and a question. Um, it came in two parts. It's from Sarah Irving. And the comment is, while I agree with the overall point of the lecture, I also wonder a bit about the opening point regarding the media portrayals. Quite a few of the examples shown look very similar to me to examples about other regions with environmental similarities, such as Australia, or which also use apocalyptic headlines to talk about climate change in order to spur action, so maybe such as regarding massive flooding in southern and eastern England. So that was the comment part. And then uh, the question from Sarah Irving is, is the sensational coverage more than about developing genres of climate change journalism than about Orientalism in this particular case? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's some maybe some truth to that to a certain extent, uh, in the sense that there are, you know, sensationalist headlines will always sell, right? 
headlines are always going to try and portray something as being dramatic and you know because that's what sells newspapers but i think in this case what my point is is that this is not just about media representation it, it goes much deeper into the western canon in terms of the way in which the environment in the region is portrayed and this is something that's been taking place really for several centuries. So I think it it does for me it, it definitely fits within this idea of uh, of the sort of orientalist imaginary of the region. So I think this is manifest in you know the media form, and it's partly because of sensationalist media coverage. But I do think it has some kind of ontological roots as well. Okay, and and we have a question from Andrew Arsan who says. Thanks for a paper that traveled very far in a short time. I guess you must have heard an earlier version of your paper. Just two small empirical questions. One is about the effects of agribusiness, particularly under neoliberal conditions, on traditional modes of farming. I'm thinking here, for instance, of Rami Zureik's work on the decline of terraced farming in the Bika to make way for fruit trees and the environmental degradation that followed. How does this compare to the high modernist technopolitics of nationalizing states that you mentioned towards the end? The other is simply to push you a bit more without wanting to lapse into pessimism or cynicism on the potential of social movements in the fact of corporate as well as state initiatives like mining, quarrying, landfills, dam projects, etc. How much are these able to exert social agency in the face of these transformations of the rural landscape? So these are two good questions. So, I mean, in terms of agribusiness and its effect on traditional modes of farming, I mean, I think that's been a, a substantial change that's taken place in the last two decades. But again, it's not something necessarily that, that's new. I mean, you could also observe processes of agrarian change taking place, you know, since Muhammad Ali in Egypt in, in some ways. So perhaps in that sense, you know, this kind of what you refer to as the, this high modernist technopolitics of states is, is not necessarily something that's new. And it has precedence in, you know, projects that we've previously observed in the region. You know, for example, it could be the Aswan Dam, for example, the High Dam and other similar projects. And in terms of the effect, but the, in the contemporary effect of agribusiness on, on uh, small farming, I think it's been, you know, substantial. I think that if you were to look at a country like Egypt, that the growth and export agriculture uh, and foreign investment in agriculture has taken place at the same time as a kind of decreased support for small farmers. And what's interesting is that this is not necessarily addressed food security. You know, food security in Egypt has probably declined, despite the fact that, you know, there's been an increased level of investment. And despite the fact that, you know, there's more resources have been given towards agriculture. In terms of your second question, I mean, the point is here really is, is that, yes, I mean, I'm not trying to argue that social movements do not face substantial and enormous power in terms of their struggles over resources. But what I am saying is that sometimes this, this history uh, and this presence of an environmental movement in the region is completely erased or completely forgotten about. And I think it's important, not just for the Middle East, but for all of us at the moment, to not resign ourselves to catastrophe, to, to not resign ourselves to, you know, apocalypse in some ways. Um, because I think that's going to be an increasing problem amongst people as they resign themselves to the worst effects of climate change. 
then that's that's something that I think is present within the tradition of political ecology in the sense that it really emphasizes space for social social agency. So my in, to be simple, I think my argument is is not is not that I'm not doubting that the, that these movements are often unsuccessful or face a, a huge obstacles, but what I am arguing is that they are present and they have potential and they will always have potential. Okay, I have a question from Laura James which is that given the challenge to long-term habitability in the Gulf region, especially, why is so little realistically being done to address climate change? And I might put a little twist of my own on that because I think in some ways you've already answered this question when you're talking about mega projects and their prospects for success, which you suggested are maybe not very high, but is there any route to promoting environmental sustainability that comes from below in the Gulf, because it, it always appears, at least from the outside, that everything is top down. Everything that happens is done through the state and the state's alliances with businesses. But is there any possibility of you know, kind of bottom think, up sustainability I mean, I, movements in the Gulf? I think to answer Laura's question first, I mean, I think that things are being done. It's just not necessarily about achieving what I would describe as a genuine form of sustainability. And I think that, you know, the don't underestimate this kind of the application of techno-modernity to the environment. So, you know, the idea that we can kind of, that these societies could potentially use their substantial resources to essentially re-engineer the social metabolism to ensure that all of the vulnerabilities that they might face are displaced elsewhere. But fundamentally, I do not see, you know, that the, the Gulf countries and the Gulf oil producers, for example, are not about to stop producing oil. Their renewable energy is not necessarily done something is not something that's a result of kind of concerns over survival. It's actually, I think, in my in my opinion, a kind of investment asset class. So I think there isn't necessarily that much being done, but don't underestimate because these are very wealthy societies in some cases. Don't underestimate just how much they can, how much money they and resources they will throw at the problem, to in order to, tr to avoid the kind of tough questions. Now, to answer your question, Walter, is there any kind of environmental movement in the region? Yeah, well, I think I, I mean I think this is my argument is that there always is. It may just not be one that is recognizable or is one that is is able to assemble on the streets or have some form of assembly. I mean, but I do think you can find in, in the region that there are definitely, you know, citizens who are concerned about the environment, whether they are able to actually, how they, how they navigate the political realities of the region, I think is, is something else. But I do also think that you will find there is definitely a, a kind of government-sponsored form of environmentalism. And also we need to acknowledge the fact that if we looked at, we look at some of the societies in the region, for example, the UAE, you know, Sheikh Zayed, the founding figure of the UAE, had a very strong environmental image. So this is a kind of example of a kind of government-sponsored form of environmentalism, which is present and, and may have some form of influence in some way. But I also think there may be other more kind of more politicized, more contentious forms of environmentalism that are existing in some places, but and may, be may become more influential in the future. We have we have a question that's a kind of a, you know a comment and a follow up question on the last one, which is from Karim Gindi, which is that what climate adaptation projects in the Netherlands are not 
technological in nature and are not top-down funded by the state and implemented by the private sector, or you know, one might actually rephrase that question slightly also by saying, you know, is there actually a place anywhere for meaningful climate action that isn't channeled through states? I mean, I think, again, this is not necessarily a con contradiction to my point in the sense that uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, when I'm referring to the fact that these projects and plans and policies in the region are top down, that's not necessarily different to the West. And, and, and my kind of prediction of failure is equally as applicable to the West as it is to the region. So I don't necessarily think that that, that is a contradiction to my argument. And in terms of what I don't, I don't really know exactly the, the details of, of what is taking place in the Netherlands, but they most likely are similar in some ways. Yeah, but I also think maybe that perhaps the, the extent of technopolitics is perhaps slightly different for various reasons, but uh, that's just uh, my hunch. We have a question from Manal Chahabi, which is, first of all, thank you for the presentation. In answering your previous question, you referred, I think probably she met the, the one before, the one you just answered, you referred to your genuine idea or form of sustainability. What is that idea? Also, I agree with you that these rich states will throw money at the problem, but I wasn't sure if you mean this will be a cosmetic cover or actually solve the issues. So, I mean, that's a good question. And to be honest with you, I've come, I'm of the conclusion that genuine form of sustainability is no longer compatible with our current economic system. And that really one of the only means of achieving genuine sustainability is no longer adhering to a kind of infinite growth economic system. Uh, it's just not possible, in my opinion, which is, and, and, that, and this is, so I'm essentially adhering to the, to the degrowth school. Uh, and and that, that, that's a hugely controversial school and it has all kinds of problems. And I'm not saying that I have answers to those problems, but I do not think that the current system will, will achieve genuine sustainability. So in that sense that, you know, I think a lot of these projects in the region really and this kind of concept of technical adjustments are really about kind of just sort of trying to maintain the system as they are elsewhere. In terms of your second program, when terms of rich states throw money at the problem, I think there is a tendency to, to, I mean, for example, if we were to look at food, these countries will develop supply chains or, or have already developed supply chains that will ensure access to food, whether that be through, for example, direct acquisition of land, but also contracts on the private market. And that's one way in which, one example of the, the way in which these countries will be able to achieve some sort of form of uh, climate resilience in the face of various problems. And in that sense, we should really kind of make a distinction between, for example, the very wealthy states of the region, which, so for example, someone like UAE or Qatar, and you know, the, the poorer states of the region. And there, there is a huge inequality in terms of how they will be able to cope with these problems. So for example, in terms of spikes in food markets, that maybe, maybe in the future could be caused by you know, climate events, droughts, for example, some of the Gulf states will be able to respond to that quite successfully, or they will be able to respond to it, but poorer states will not. So I think there's a kind of material feature that I'm describing here, but there's also a kind of discursive question of image as well, and a more political question. And I think, again, some of these projects that are being discussed are not really about sort of some material outcome. They're actually just about 
you know, laundering image and creating the appearance of progress and all the kind of technopolitical aspects, some of which I've described. Okay, thank you very much, Christian. That was an excellent presentation. You got a, a good audience. And, yeah, and, great and questions. Very good questions. We've come to the end of our hour. And, and so on behalf of the Middle East Center, I want to thank you very much for participating in our seminar. It, it was a great presentation, um, very thought-provoking. And uh, we hope to see you again. Well, we hope to see you someday in person. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't be there in person. Yeah, so are we. Okay, and with that, I say good night to our audience and to our speaker. And again, thank you very much for participating in our seminar. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for their questions and thanks for attending.